0: Almost every day, we seem to get new data about the COVID crisis, whether it's infection rates, death rates, testing rates, false negative rates, There's a lot of information to call through. Making sense of COVID data is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former chair of Media, Journalism and Film. Our guests today are Maria Gargiulo and Megan Price of the Human Rights Data Analysis Group, or HRDAG. Price is the executive director where she's worked on projects related to human rights issues in Guatemala, Colombia, and Syria. Gargiulo is a statistician with HRDAG and was also a data science fellow at the U.S. Census Bureau. They're here today to talk about some of the group's work on the COVID crisis. Maria and Megan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Megan, I'm going to start with a question for you. So HRDAG describes itself as quote a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that applies rigorous science to the analysis of human rights violations around the world." End quote. You've been publishing a bit uh, about COVID, including some pieces in Significance Magazine. How do you situate the work on COVID within the larger human rights framework that your group is, is, is sitting in?
1: Everything that we do stems from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that's the starting point for for all of our thinking about our work. And we're also just humans. And so when this crisis started, of course, it was understanding it and trying to just get some handle on how to even go about making decisions about how to live our lives was at the forefront of all of our minds. And through our work, we've had so much experience as what we think of as science communicators, thinking about how to explain really complicated, emotionally fraught ideas to folks who may not have much or any grounding in statistics or data analysis or science more generally. And so we really felt like that was not only a role that we could step into, but also something that could could help us as a team to focus on something that that felt urgent and useful. So what's been some of the
2: reactions that you've had to these columns? I mean, you've been writing a number of these uh, explanatory pieces to try to convey and communicate some of these issues that are emerging with with uh, the pandemic. Have you you got any feedback? What's it been?
1: We have. Um, and I have to say this is a little bit biased because it was one of my friends, but <laughs> my my favorite reactions have so far been to a column we wrote in a literary magazine called Granta, which is perhaps not uh, a common outlet for statisticians, um, about essentially, what role does base theorem play in interpreting uh, screening tests and, and how do you know what your personal screening test means? Um, and one of my particularly math phobic friends reached out and said, I actually understood that. Thank you. Um, and that just is, is the most gratifying feedback we can get.
3: So can you talk a little bit about the undercounting of COVID infections and what some of the obstacles are in getting good data in your work?
1: um, I think I might start that, uh, I'll start with your second question, which is getting good data um, in in our non-COVID work, which our our non-COVID work is focused on human rights violations, as our name implies, and also on specifically types of violence. Um, And there are a whole variety of reasons why that might not be fully documented. And some of them are pretty benign. Some of them are just the violence wasn't witnessed or the individuals who are doing the best they can to document and describe that violence just didn't have the resources that week, um, didn't have enough people on the ground. Um, and then other times they're, they're pretty intentional. A lot of violence is, is hidden um, and, and very intentionally kept from the public eye. And so I would say that a variety of those same things are happening in our attempts to understand COVID-related deaths there are certainly a lot of incentives to not categorize something as a COVID death um, or to uh, choose different metrics in terms of positive rates of tests or numbers of tests or who gets tested. Um, And those incentives are not always going to lead to the most complete and the best data collection, unfortunately. Um, But then again, there are also just lots of Perfectly benign reasons. Um, in New York, at the peak of the outbreak, there, everyone was just overwhelmed, yeah. and the idea of of writing everything down, um, you know, certainly came came far lower on the list of priorities than helping everyone you could help. Uh, and so that's, I think, where statisticians can come in and say, look, you don't have to write everything down. We can use the tools in our toolkit to fill in those gaps.
2: So you, you write it in one of the, the essays, what your, your group wrote, that's, that science starts with theories and stories about how the world works. You know, does, does, does the idea of trying to, conv- you know, this, this is a really hard story to tell, you know, that, that people, you know, they may have less thought about theory as part of something they learned, they heard in the scientific method when they were in school and didn't really think a lot about since then. What are some of the, the challenges and some of the way, some of the potential solutions when trying to communicate these more complex stories? Whether they're, you know, SIR models and and some of the nuance of finding them to to an audience that may not think a lot about theories and background.
4: Um, so when I think about theories personally, the thing I really like to try and figure out is how do I test if I think a theory holds in this situation. Um, and I think in, in communicating science, giving people things to look for is really helpful. Um, so I think a lot about, uh, I think the piece you, you mentioned, the, the director of research, Patrick Ball, wrote, um, and he kind of provides a list of like things you might look out for. So for example, when we're testing a theory, uh, a rigorous theory is really careful about the types of assumptions it makes. Okay. So in order to come to our conclusion that we made about, you know, the way the world works, what are the things we assumed? Um, and once someone kind of delineates those really clearly, it's a lot easier to say, oh, I think those assumptions are reasonable. I can kind of hold on to the thread here. That makes sense. Or hmm, I don't think that's true. Uh, and if that's not true, you might have a way to start thinking about, oh, if that's not true, what other things might not hold? Um, so I guess trying to communicate the ideals that let people, you know, test the theory for themselves, even if that's an informal way. I think that's really important for for things like this.
3: So uh, this morning, speaking of stories, there's a story on the front page of the Dayton Daily News about area residents could be part of a virus study. And through this podcast and talking to scientists and statisticians, I'm just confounded by the fact that we haven't done more random studies of COVID. And I'm wondering both at the regional level and at the national level, and that Ohio just now is going to do a, a random study of 1,200 randomly selected participants. Wh- what's the problem here? I mean, we've talked to statisticians who have said this should have been going on much earlier and we'd have a much high, a better idea of who's infected and who's not.
4: I think for me, and you know, part of this is I don't actually understand the full extent to resource constraints right now, but I think a lot of it is is resource constraints. It's a lot easier... I think to say, oh, we have these twenty people in the hospital right now. We can test them. We can talk to them. We can do these things. Rather than okay, you know, thinking about what does a representative sample look like? How do we go out and find that representative sample within the community? Um, Do we actually want it to be you know fully representative in that normal sense? Do we want to oversample certain groups? We want to undersample other groups? Um, So I just think it's harder. It's it's you know. Convenient samples are, are nice because because they're convenient. Random samples are hard because they need to be really carefully constructed and under constrained resources, you know, it's not clear to me how feasible that is or how hard or easy it is.
1: Yeah, I'm mostly going to second everything Maria just said. I mean, I think much, much like kind of the prioritizing that happened in New York around do do we just try and get everyone we can to the hospital or do we keep perfect records, I mean... One of the things that I think is hardest about this moment in time is that just everything needs massive resources. Yeah. And figuring out how to allocate those and how to balance the really urgent today priorities while also like recognizing that we need to make some long term we need to make some decisions with a long-term vision that, you know, our future selves will be grateful for. Um, and I'm certainly grateful that that's not my job to make those kinds of decisions. You know, and I, and I think also coming from, I have a public health background where, you know, there are lots of situations where you, you can't do a randomized controlled trial for, for ethical yeah. and logistical reasons. Um, and I think there's a certain amount of that at play here too. And I think that because of the way the United States is set up, you know, something that public health has done for years and years and years is to identify these natural experiments that happen because different regions make different decisions and take different actions. And so personally, I think that it's as important and as valuable to identify those comparisons that are more readily available um, as it is, I mean, I, I, certainly let's also do randomized trials and let's get those organized. Um, but I, I think that, that, both of those things happening at once is, is the way to go.
2: So you, this, this part of the conversation makes me think a lot, a lot about the value of information, you know, so, so in, in some ways, what we're saying is that, that if we're, we're taking these samples of convenience, we're, we're looking at individuals who are probably symptomatic and, sh- you know, that are showing the, you know, that are of gravest concern, but, but they're telling us about, okay, what's, You know, are people that are symptomatic? Are they disease? Do they have the disease? As opposed to knowing knowing about what's going on in the population, and so I think it's it's a hard question. It's you know, what's you're talking about decisions and what's the value of the information that you gain from knowing more about what's going on in the population than knowing about what's going on in some small symptomatic subset of the population. And I, I I agree completely about about the uh, you know the resources have to be allocated in a way that that re, that there's a triage component to this. It, it's we have to to solve this problem in a sensible sensible order. But but if we're how important is it to have the information that that that's that's unbiased and kind of meaningful for for supporting these decisions?
1: That's I mean y- yes <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you know but again I think that that's where. You know, as statisticians, I mean, we should always recognize when our data are incomplete and biased, but we also shouldn't just sort of throw up our hands and say, well, then we can't use that data. Um, there, We we should recognize when a particular class of methods is appropriate to either adjust for those things or to account for them in, in some way. Um, and I think also, you know, kind of coming back to natural exper- experiments, You know, we do have a couple of really, I hesitate to use the word interesting in this setting, but really interesting things that have happened specifically on cruise ships, which which is a closed population and where they were able to collect data about every single person. And so- that again, like the the population on a cruise ship isn't gonna represent general populations really anywhere, um, but it gives us a chance to say, okay, if we test every single person, what's the difference that we're seeing between symptomatic and asymptomatic and, and those kinds of things. And I know here in San Francisco, They did a very similar thing just at a micro level they picked like a four block radius in one of the neighborhoods in san francisco and said we're just going to test everybody in this four block radius and so i think there's also opportunities to do that kind of hyper localized thing
3: to to start to to learn more information do you know what that what what did that yield that four block study that was interesting
1: oh man that yield. So this was a UCSF study and they partnered with another organization that I'm not going to be able to come up with. Um, but what they found was the kind of racial disparity that mm. we're now seeing writ large, especially in the latest oh. New York Times data. So in this four block radius, this four block neighborhood, it was in the Mission and um I can't remember now but it was I want to say maybe like 5% of the Hispanic residents were positive not necessarily symptomatic not necessarily mm-hmm. high, but but came, they co- they gave everyone a diagnostic test and they were positive. They literally could not find a single Caucasian member of that neighborhood that tested
0: positive. Wow, that's incredible. You're listening to Stats and Stories and today we're talking with Maria Gargiulo and Megan Price of the Human Rights Data Analysis Group. We see a lot of coverage in news media of infection rates, of death rates, of hospitalizations, Given the work that you have been doing at HRDAG on this issue, are there stories in the data that are underreported that you think people should be paying more attention to?
4: So a story I, I would like to hear more about in a non-U.S. context is what the intersection of, um, say, COVID and conflict or COVID and displacement um, is going to be. So I'm thinking, for example, like COVID arrives at a, uh, a refugee camp.
0: Yeah.
4: You know, what happens? Um, and that is terrifying. Um, because I, I think, you know, the only conclusion I, I come to in my head is the results are going to be grim. But what is that like? What what happens then? Do people leave the camp? Do people stay in the camp and get sick? Um, so I, I'm, that's a space I'm watching to just see what happens. And mm-hmm. and also, how does humanitarian aid react to that? I have no idea. Um, so we don't, you know, that's not so relevant in the, in the US context. But, mm-hmm. you know, as we consider COVID as a global pandemic, I think that's that's something I will be watching and really hoping goes better than I'm expecting it to go.
0: Do you know of any work that's looking at infection rates along class lines? Because I would imagine that there could be particular breakdowns along class um, in some places. And I, it's not something that I can r- remember having seen. Like like you pointed out, Megan, I think the, the reporting on race has just sort of started emerging in a lot of the and a lot of the coverage but I can't remember seeing much about class I've seen it about the geographic breakdown like rural versus urban um, but then um, this issue of you know our poor communities being impacted more or less or or anything like that so I just wanted to ask that question
1: yeah not that I'm aware of and in fact you know I- earlier in the, in the pandemic, which I mean, is such a weird way to describe things because as much as we're all in this time dilation, you know, it honestly hasn't been that long. Um, but, but earlier I did see some some comparisons of, of occupation, of, of risk and infection rate by occupation, which is a bit of a proxy for that. And I haven't seen much follow up on that. Um, so I think that that is another, another thing that deserves more attention. Well,
2: it, it seems like some of the things related to some of the exposures related to occupation may also play out in terms of living conditions. You know, so if you're, you know, the, the concern, I guess in the, the U.S., it's something like 40% of the fatalities are in nursing homes. You know, and if, as you look at other environments, that tends to be where we're, people are living in more grouped housed environments. And if you, if you live in a high density area as well as then go out and work, it seems like that just kind of explodes it. So that, that runs a little bit counter to my earlier comment about, about who, you know, who we're studying and how. I mean, in some ways, if we're looking at the people that are gonna be the most dramatically impacted, then you might want to, we might wanna be targeting what we're doing. I, I thought I saw that there was some recent work that's starting to come out related to the COVID impact in Central and South America.
1: Yeah, there has been. And so, I mean, I guess that's sort of the uh, the coda to to my comment that, you know, what stories are getting told is highly correlated with what what media sources you're consuming. Um, And so, yeah, because we have a lot of projects and partners and collaborations in Central and South America. I have a lot of sources of information on that part of the world. And so, yes, um, there there is a fair amount of coverage coming out about how the infection rates are unfolding there. But, yeah, I'm not I'm not seeing that in perhaps more conventional mainstream U.S. media.
3: One of the things that relates to the sort of class problem that Rosemary brought up is there's a lot of discussions now of should we send our kids to school, back to school? And part of it is that wealthier school districts are in better shape to do this than poorer school districts. And uh, and I guess my question is, if you have children or if you don't have children, <laughs> what should we do? I mean, what's the best <laughs> advice? Or is it all sort of just a regional or local problem?
1: Oh man, do I have thoughts on that? Um, so, so I have I have two kids. Uh, my daughters are uh, 14 months and three and a half years old, and they're at daycare right now. And I kind of am both like really happy about that and really scared about that. And also, mm-hmm. my husband is mm-hmm. a public school teacher, <laughs> so. Um, uh, so, so schools and kids and what to do is like all we think about right now. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think that, I think that operationally it has to be regional because it's going to be so contingent upon just what the situation is on the ground. But on the other hand, you know, a, a, a top down national, you know, like like threshold guidelines you you can only even consider opening the schools if your case count per capita is x um you know to safely have in-person learning you need y dollars per student um we're going to provide these grants that are going to cover you know ppe and and sanitation services i mean that kind of thing i think can be at a bigger framing. Um, but yeah, I mean, just to kind of answer the question as a statistician, I, I have, I have no idea. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you guys are, you're telling us something because you're, you're, you're both working from home now. So, yeah. so, uh, so you're, there's, there's clearly a policy decision that you're making at a very local level about kind of what can we do to, to prevent potential, infection within our community within mm-hmm. our workforce mm-hmm. but but those communities that need to make decisions just to, getting back to kind of what you're produ- what you've been producing and some of the things you've been writing about is is they need good data they need good information and in some ways you know you if you're a so so now you know maria I'm going to make you the superintendent of our local school district excellent so congr- congratulations, <laughs> and con- congratulations and congratulations and condolences by the way because Thank you're you. the one that has to make a decision about How how many kids can come back to school? How should they be spaced in their classrooms? How should you know all of these things? And by the way, you've got 10 parents on the line waiting to talk to you about why they need their kids back in school. I mean, so how does how does science help? You know, how does the, the science and the study of some of the data that's associated with this this pandemic? How can it be communicated to help these these local decision makers that you've that you've appropriately mentioned to make their to make the calls that they need to make?
4: Yeah, so I I think if if I were, you know, the superintendent in charge of this, I'd want to talk to different people. So I want to talk to these parents on the phone. I'd want to talk to my teachers. Uh, do they feel, you know, like part of this is not necessarily just about like the science, the ground truth. It's also like, do you feel safe going to work? How do the kids feel about going to school? I'd love to talk to some of them and figure out, you know, if you had the opportunity to go back to school, would would you feel safe doing that? Or would you just sit in class being really anxious all the time? you know, thinking, I, the, today's the day I'm going to get sick, or I'm going to get one of my classmates sick, or my teacher. Um, so I'd want to start with conversations there. And then I'd start asking questions like, how much money do I actually have for personal protective equipment? Um, do I have backup plans for if and when things go wrong? What do those look like? Um, what are the effects of, you know, starting, say, starting a school year in person, and then sending kids home? Uh, this is, a, I think, a different type of data collection that isn't necessarily like, you know, uh, biological data about the virus, you know, like, do students have internet at home, right? These are these are other types of data collections we need to do. So virus biology, and you know, everything we know about the spread of the epidemic, I think helps us maybe make decisions about, okay, we can only have, you know, 15 students in a classroom. So maybe 50% full, we'll call that. Um, But then also, there are these other these, this other type of data collection that needs to happen that that really has nothing to do with the spread of vi- of the virus and everything to do with, you know, like the outside kind of social dynamics of what's going on in the community. So I'd, you know, I really want to get more data sources involved, which I fear would only complicate things, even though I'm saying it would help elucidate.
2: Well, you know, if the stat thing doesn't work out, I think there may be a superintendent gig in your future. That's
3: a- I,
0: I'm going to swoop in with a, a final question and steal it from John. Um I, you know, people, I think, are overwhelmed with data related to this, um, it, you know, because it's coming out every day. Given the work that you've been doing, yeah. what advice would you have for our listeners about, you know, how to wade through the data and how to make sense of it in their own lives?
1: You know, what I personally have been doing has been to have a really strict news and data consumption diet. And to really stay focused hyper locally, um, and it's hard. It's because you know my my phone at any moment wants to tell me about these headlines about how there's a spike in cases in the state of California. But the state of California is really big, and in my city there's an increase in cases, but it's not quite as scary. And so working really hard to contextualize those big stories with the hyper-local data. And I do think that that's actually something that most cities and counties that I, I have looked at have been doing a really good job of, of being transparent and saying, look, this is, mm, this is what we yeah. know, and this is how we know it. But that said, I am a statistician, and so I find data very comforting. Um, and I think that I think that if that is not the place you're coming from, then even that can can still feel really overwhelming because these hyperlocal dashboards do still contain a lot of information and they get updated every day. Um, and so, you know, in that case, what I would really recommend is to identify one or two sources who you absolutely trust who are filtering and contextualizing that information for you. Um, And that may be a news source, that may be a friend, that may be an expert on Twitter. Um, It can be hard to vet those sources and to really know that you're getting reliable information that way. But I think that if you personally don't have kind of the the comfort to to deal with that raw data that's coming at you, um, that would be my recommendation.
4: Yeah, I'll just kind of second everything that Megan just said. I, I in particular, don't look at the data every day. That would Drive me crazy, but um, I do read a lot of epidemiologists on Twitter, and you know it's really nice. I get really good synthesis, and for me, they also sometimes write about kind of the the news, like the new studies that are coming out. And I could sit down and read those studies, and you know I might understand bits and pieces of them, but for me, it's nice to have these data contextualized also with like what are the advances we're making, where are we making progress, where are we really struggling right now. Um, and getting that from someone who's an expert, not only in that field, but there are lots of folks on Twitter who've been being really thoughtful about science communication. That's that's where I've been doing a lot of my learning. Um, and I think that's just helped me kind of, you know, find the signal mm-hmm. and the noise and, and get out at least what I want to understand, which is mainly like, what's the general trajectory look like? And Megan's right with kind of these hyper local news sources. That's like really helpful to me, especially because I've been, you know, not really leaving my house. So really the most relevant thing for me is that hyperlocal geography, Um, but then also understanding and like, here's the trajectory we're going on in terms of scientific Mm -hmm. learning. Uh, So balancing both like research with like what's actually happening is is what I look for. And I just try and read experts on that.
0: Well, Megan and Maria, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you guys both. Yeah, thanks so much. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net, and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss us the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.